Join me, if you would, for a moment in thinking about the highlight of your week. (laughs) What was the highlight of the last seven days? Does it come to mind quickly and easily? I know exactly what it was. I know where I was. I know what happened. Good. You having to dig a little bit? Maybe it wasn't a great week? We got rain last night. That could be the highlight of your week if you're still reaching for something. But I want you to think about that highlight of your week, and then I want you to do one more thing with it. I want you to thank God for it. Just quietly to yourself, thank you, God, for whatever it was. And I wanted to start with that because we're going to be talking about fiery ordeals today, and I didn't want it to be a downer. I wanted to start with something positive, start with a good emotion and reminding ourselves of the highlight of our week, because as we think about suffering, what might come to mind is a season of suffering. Maybe you're in a season of suffering. Maybe what will come to mind is a a season in the past of suffering, of pain, of a fiery ordeal that, that came upon you, maybe unexpectedly, or maybe you knew it was coming and it was still difficult, or maybe what will come to mind will be someone you know who is suffering right now. And maybe there'll be something that the Lord lays upon your heart to share with them, a word of encouragement or share this message with them or or whatever the case may be. But as we consider fiery ordeals, we're in a series titled Holy Fire and we're looking at examples of holy fire, fire from heaven that comes throughout the course of Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, today we'll start in the New Testament, we'll go into the Old Testament and we'll come back out in the New Testament And to remind you, an ordeal is different than just a normal challenge or a a normal difficulty. You know, it's a red light is not an ordeal, even when you're late. (laughs) Ordeals are intensely difficult and often prolonged, and they they you don't have an end in sight, and you're not quite sure. And that's what I believe Peter had in mind when he wrote to persecuted Christians. In the first century, he, he wrote two letters, and the, the first of those letters is really focused in on persecution that they were facing under Nero, we're told. The emperor Nero that just really did not want anything to do with Christianity and, and tried his best to squash it. And here's what Peter says in First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange we're happening to you. You see, fiery ordeals have a lot to teach us. If we will lean in, if we will learn from them. And so you might want to take some notes. In fact, if you're a note taker, this one's for you. Man, you are going to love this. There's like three different lists, a one, two, three, and a one, two, three, four, and another one, two, three. Like you're going to have a whole page of notes. And if you need a page piece of paper, there's tabs, or pads, I'm sorry, uh, in the seats in front of you, and there's pens in the seats in front of you, so you can take some notes. And if you are not a note taker, fear not. Everything's going to be on the screen. And just look for that one or two things and say a, a, a silent prayer to yourself right now. God, what do you want me to hear today from your word, from this message? Because there's one fiery ordeal in particular that comes to mind when I think of a fiery ordeal and when I hear Peter's words and I think about persecution from those who hold the ultimate power at a certain time and in a certain place. And so to to do that, we need to look at a story that comes to us in Daniel chapter 3. And if you're familiar with Daniel chapter 3, you know I'm talking about 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And this is a powerful, powerful story, and it has some really important lessons to teach us. And so we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at Daniel chapter 3, which you can find if you're in the room in, in one of those hardcover Bibles on page 1374. If you're joining along, I would really encourage you to have that open. We're not going to read every verse. We'll skip and summarize a few things, and, and we'll focus in on a few areas and really try to draw out the lessons that, that we can learn from this story and then seek to apply those to our lives. And one of our core values is centering our lives on God's Word. We talk about that a lot here at Linwood, and, and we don't want to just kind of visit God's Word every now and then and then go and about and live our lives in our own way. We want to center our lives on God's Word, and that means taking it, learning from it, applying it, and being different on Monday because we came to church on Sunday and being different on Tuesday because we opened God's Word and spent time learning from it and growing in it. And so the context here of, Gen, of, of Daniel chapter 3 is, is around 6th century. It's in Babylon. Babylon was the world superpower at the time. It was this kingdom to the north and east of Jerusalem of Israel, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, and uh, they had come and conquered Jerusalem. They had conquered Israel. They had conquered Judah, and they did what they were known to do. They took all the wealthy, educated, ruling class people, the upper echelon, and they took them back to Babylon, and they just left a few people behind to sort of tend the crops and send the tribute and, and, you know, keep things going. And what they were doing was very intentional. They were taking the best and the brightest back to Babylon in order to do what scholars have called subjugation by assimilation. They bring them to Babylon. They immerse them in Babylonian culture. They take the best and the brightest, and there's stories of this early in the book of Daniel um, where they are indoctrinating them in Babylonian culture and teaching them about Babylonian history and Babylonian gods and, and introducing them to Babylonian arts and Babylonian food and all of this in order to assimilate them and to indoctrinate them and to subjugate them and to make them subject to the Babylonian empire. And so the book of Daniel is a series of stories of encounters of Daniel and in this case three of his friends and their interactions and sort of conflicts with the kings of Babylon. And Daniel through God's grace through his faithfulness to God is enabled to live for decades in this situation, in this very precarious and difficult situation, and to rise to significant influence and maintain his devotion and his faith in God. And so there are powerful, powerful lessons that emerge from the book of Daniel. And today we're going to look at this story in Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to call out three things in particular, and I owe a lot to a Tim Keller sermon that I listened to while I was on sabbatical on this very text, and he, and he just had some insights that, oh, this is really good, this is really timely, and this really fits the sermon series I have coming up on Holy Fire, so it was like a perfect, a perfect connection, and so I want to share a couple of those things. Uh, first thing that we see in this, and, and you might think, well, that doesn't really fit what we're talking about, but it absolutely fits the world that we live in today, and that is the pressure of pluralism, specifically religious pluralism. And if you're not familiar with that terminology, we'll define it for you. Um, but we see this 
in verses 13 through 15. So in the first 12 verses, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar sets us this image of gold, and he declares that whenever this music plays, and they list all these instruments, whenever this music plays, everybody is to bow down and worship the image of gold. Well, that presents a problem for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in particular in this story, and they won't do it. And so that's where we pick up the story. And he had said, and we'll see, that there are consequences for not doing what they've been told to do. And so when the king is informed that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow down, we're told that he was furious with rage. And he summoned them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, saying, saying uh, that they were brought to the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Do you hear the, the arrogance? Do you hear the anger? Do you hear the fury? He had set something forward, and they had disobeyed his authority. And... One insight that's kind of interesting is the fact that they're getting a second chance indicates that he held them in somewhat high regard (laughs) because they could have just already been in the fire. But he's giving them one more chance. He's saying, if you fall down and worship, very good. All's well. That ends well. But if not, you'll be thrown immediately into the fire. And we see here the pressure of pluralism. And to understand that, to understand the idea of religious pluralism, you see, religious pluralism says you can do what you want in private, but in public, you'll do what we say, and we'll all do it together, right? And so that's the religious pluralism. It allows for a plurality. It allows you to worship whatever God you want in private, to be an atheist in private, to be an agnostic in private. But when we're together, when we're out in the world together, and the music plays, you're going to bow down and worship the image of gold. That's what religious pluralism is putting pressure on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's interesting to consider, we're never told what the image is. Even if you read the first 12 verses of that chapter, it doesn't tell us what the image is. And it's interesting, it's pretty clear from the text that it's not one of the gods. He says, you will not worship my gods or the image that I have set up. And so we're not quite sure what it is, and it's probably not Nebuchadnezzar, because you would think he would have declared it was his. And scholars agree that it actually represents all gods, all values, all beliefs, and it's trying to make them equal. It's trying to create this homogenous society, a religiously pluralistic society, where you can do whatever you want in in private, but in public you will do what we say. We will all do it together. And that's what religious pluralism is. And Babylon's not the only culture that has, has strived for this. Rome strived for religious pluralism. That's what got these Christians that Peter's writing to in 1 Peter in so much trouble because they would not say, Hail Caesar. And in Rome, you could kind of do what you wanted as long as you said, Hail Caesar, when they said, Hail Caesar. And we live in a culture and we live in a time that is becoming increasingly pluralistic. Where you'll hear people say, you do what you want on your own time. But when we're together, don't, don't be evangelizing. Don't be declaring who Jesus is. Don't be evangelizing. 
There are cultures all over the world where they say, it's fine if you come, but don't evangelize. Don't proselytize. Don't say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Do what you want in private, but when we're together, you'll do what we say. And this puts tremendous pressure on us today in living our Christian values. If you're in the business world, everyone around you might be doing just right up to the, the line of what is legal. Forget ethical. They just focus on what is legal and try not to get caught breaking the law. And if they know they can get away with it, they'll do it. And so if you're in, in business as a believer with different values, biblical values, there's pressure that's exerted on you to privatize your faith. Do what you want the other 128 hours a week. But that 40 hours a week that you're on the clock, you do what we say. Or if you want to compete, you're going to have to make compromises. And so there's pressure. And those that are in relationships and are, are, are trying to navigate relationships, our children in middle school and high school and in college, there is tremendous pressure. If they want to be in relationships, if they want to be popular, if they want to have a peer group, there's tremendous pressure to privatize their faith, to keep that on the margins, and to go way too far, way too fast, way too often relationally. And there's tremendous pressure because this is how we do it here. And there are all kinds of areas where this takes place, where values get brought up and we are encouraged or we are pressured by the surrounding culture to privatize our faith, to privatize our values, to keep that private. But we see in in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a refusal to bow. A refusal to give in, to cave to that pressure of religious pluralism. And that sets up the next point in their response, which is the power of true faith. We see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the power of true faith versus a shallow faith. Not necessarily false faith, but a a shallow faith. They show us the power of true, deep, genuine, authentic faith. In God, And we see that in their response. So in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods. And we will not worship the image of gold you have set up. Did you catch it? Did you catch that they had faith not only that God could and that he would, they go a step further. Not just name it and claim it. They say, but even if he doesn't, we believe he can. We're confident that he will. But even if he doesn't, We're not bowing, come what may. We're not going to cave to the pressure. They may make a stand. They say, we love and we serve God for himself. We believe he can. We're confident that he will. But we love and we serve and we follow and we obey God for who he is, not what he does. For who he is. He is the sovereign creator of all. And he is worthy of our praise and he is worthy of our worship and he is worthy of of our admiration, him and him alone. And so we will not cave. And this could be contrasted, 
This even if faith, even if he doesn't, can be contrasted with an only if faith. Maybe you've been there. I can be honest and say there have been times in my life where I exhibited an only if faith. (laughs) I was mad at God, quoting my resume to God. Look at this. I did this. I did this. I did this. I did this. And you didn't come through. And that's a crisis of faith. And in those moments, we have to decide, do we serve God only if? Or do we serve God even if? Even if. I see this sometimes as a pastor. I hear the stories. I trusted. I tithed. I served. I went to church every single Sunday. I didn't miss Sunday for years. And then this happened to me. And I lost my faith. But it was only a faith. And we have to understand that God came through for every single one of us on the cross. He owes us nothing. When we look at the cross, if we can look at the cross and have anything that God still owes us, then we have missed it. We have missed it entirely. He has taken care of everything we need for eternity through the cross. And so the difference between only if faith and even if faith is where the power comes. True faith is even if faith. Even if doesn't matter. It's the difference between using God with an only if faith and trusting in him deeply and confidently and trusting that if he does not, there's a good reason and it's going to be okay. And I believe that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego recognized and realized God can save us from death or he will save us through death. But death is not the end. And for those of us who are in Christ, death is not the end. If you have accepted the gift of God through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, then death isn't the end. And this momentary suffering, as Paul calls it in Romans 8, and Paul knew a little bit about suffering, but he even referred to it as a momentary suffering, is not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be displayed in us who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 is a powerful, powerful chapter of Scripture. And they recognize God can save us from death or he will save us through death, but it doesn't really matter. We're in a win-win situation. And I've been in hospital rooms with people who recognize they are in a win-win situation. They're like, God's either going to heal me and I get to keep doing this with people I love, or he's not. And I get to go be with him, but it's a win-win situation. See, they'd already won. That's why they say in verse 16, we don't even have to defend ourselves in this matter. We don't have to answer. We understand you got to do what you got to do. But we're not moving. We're not bowing. They could handle anything. They were spiritually fireproof. They were spiritually fireproof. There was nothing that he could throw at them. And I believe we can be spiritually fireproof too. And that leads us to the third point that I want to call out, the promises of suffering. The promises of suffering. We see some promises here, and we have some promises through the balance of Scripture that are represented here. And there are at least three of them. But I want to kind of summarize Nebuchadnezzar's response. As you can imagine, it's not conversion. (laughs) He doesn't just, oh, okay, no problem. Maybe I should worship that God too. No, he's furious. 
In fact, we're told that he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. It was already plenty hot. But he's mad and he's going to show his power. And he's going to show and try to intimidate them. In fact, we're told that he commanded that the furnace be heated up so hot that the, the, even the people that went to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire perished. It was so hot, right? But then he leaps to his feet in amazement. And in verse 25, we see his response. He saw two astonishing things that he had no way to explain. And he said, praise be to the God. I'm sorry. He didn't say that. First, in verse 25, he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. He was so close. He was so close to seeing what we know. But the two things that he notices that he has no explanation for is, one, these guys are walking around in this fire, this fire that was so hot that the people that threw them in are already toast. Not only are they walking around, there's not three of them, there's a fourth. There's a fourth, and that fourth one doesn't look like the other three. That fourth one looks like, in his words, a son of the gods. Like I said, he was really, really close. Now, you have to understand, fires and furnaces throughout Scripture are often representative of suffering. And so this is a very real event that took place, a historical event that took place, but it's also metaphorical. It also represents suffering for us. So when we talk about the promises of suffering or the promises of God to us in our fiery ordeals, I think there are three important things that we need to remember about suffering that we see in this passage. First, it's inevitable. Suffering is inevitable. And the other two are more encouraging. (laughs) Because that's not good news. You're like, wait a minute, Pastor Mark. I thought you told me this was going to be good. There's a promise that suffering is inevitable. It's inevitable. You you fall into three categories. You either have gone through tremendous suffering, you're going through it right now, or you will go through suffering. Job 5.7. Job is considered the oldest book in the Bible, and the oldest manuscripts that we have of Scripture are from the book of Job. And in Job 5.7... He says, yet man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. I love the, I love the, you know, the allusion to fire and to sparks flying upward. We are born to trouble. We are born into a fallen world. Adam and Eve were born into a perfect world. And then there was the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And ever since then, man has been born to trouble. There will be trouble. There will be difficulties. Even our Lord and Savior to his disciples. In this world you will have what? trouble but take heart i've overcome the world it's inevitable suffering is inevitable and i call this out to our attention because i believe americans suffer i'm sorry americans struggle with suffering more than most i've had the opportunity to go on a number of mission trips i've been in third world uh, settings i've been in places where they have literally nothing no income no shelter no food They have nothing. Have you ever seen Maslow's hierarchy of needs? They don't have any levels. They don't even have Wi-Fi, right? They have joy. They have a joy that is curiously absent in this American culture that really has quite a lot. And we struggle. And I believe part of the reason that we struggle is because we resist. We resist suffering. And psychologists have pointed out very pointedly that the resistance of suffering increases the suffering 
Our resistance to suffering compounds, magnifies, multiplies our suffering. And on the flip side of that, on the converse of that, the ability to accept, the acceptance of suffering reduces the suffering. You probably heard the serenity prayer, right? God grant me the grace to accept with serenity the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things I should, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's really just the first third. There's more to that prayer, and there's a line that I love in that prayer that deals with this this idea, and it says, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. That's the inevitability of suffering, and accepting that actually reduces it. And even Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you. Don't be surprised. Expect it. It's inevitable. Second, the second thing that we see here that we can learn from this this story and that we can learn from our suffering is that if you truly trust God, suffering can refine your faith. It can refine it the same way that fire refines gold. In between services, uh, one of our first service people reminded me of something that I heard before but I hadn't thought of in preparation for this, and that is that when, a, when somebody is, is uh, working with precious metals, particularly gold, uh, the, all the dross, all the impurities, as they heat that up to a liquid form, all the impurities come up first. And the, the metal worker knows that the dross has been worn, burned away when it can see its reflection in the gold in the liquid gold because all the dross is gone. All the dross has been burned away. It's heated to that point. And our suffering can refine our faith. It can refine our character. It has a refining quality. Earlier in his letter to persecuted Christians in 1 Peter, in verses 6 and 7, he's talking about this persecution that has come upon them. And he says in verse 6, In this, in this persecution, you greatly rejoice... Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. What in the world, Peter? Rejoice? Come on, man. These, he continues, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Suffering can refine your faith. It can make it better. It can make it purer. It can make it more beautiful and more valuable. Because suffering produces self-knowledge, self-awareness. It produces compassion and empathy for others. Suffering produces true trust in God and deep, deep wisdom. So when we trust in God, when we truly trust in God, suffering can refine our faith. Third thing it can do, when we trust in God we can know that he is with us in the suffering. That's the third promise that we see most clearly in this passage, that when we trust in God, he is with us in the suffering. He has promised this. One of my favorites, and you know, when we launch a series called Life Verse, it's like, how do you pick just one? Well, if I'd have been able to do two, the other one would have been Isaiah 43. If you ever gotten an email from me from my personal account, it's signed Isaiah 43, and I print that text out. And uh, here's what Isaiah says. Here's what God says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. 
the flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. He will be with us in the fire. He has promised. And we see that so clearly here, because who was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire? As I said, Nebuchadnezzar was really, really close. He almost got it. He said, and one who looks like, the fourth looks like a son of the gods. But scholars agree, this was Jesus. This was a pre-incarnate Christ coming to visit them. And they come out of the fire unscathed. And our bottom line today, taking all that into consideration, our bottom line today is that suffering is inevitable. Growth is optional. Suffering is inevitable. We will face suffering. We will go through trials. We will go through difficulties. Jesus promised it. The people of God have gone through suffering throughout. From cover to cover, there is suffering. And we will suffer. Growth is what's optional. And we can choose to grow. And we can choose to be refined in and through suffering. And when we do, our faith and our character, ours can grow and be refined. Our relationship with Christ can grow and be refined. Our witness to this world can grow and be refined. And you know this is true because you have seen people who have suffered well. Who've gone through incredible hardships. But they have suffered well. They have kept their faith. They have kept their eyes on Jesus. They have walked through it every step of the way with him. And it has been a powerful, powerful witness to the world. Someone's coming to mind right now. And so how do we do it? How do we choose growth? How do we actually grow through suffering? Don't worry, I'm going to go fast. I know I've got like two minutes. Probably going to take five. But I know, all right? (laughs) The first thing that we do to choose growth and to actually grow through suffering is to expect it. This one, you should probably already have that figured out. you got to expect it. Peter said, don't be surprised at the fire ordeal that has come upon you. Expect it. Expect suffering. Jesus promised it. Don't be surprised. The second thing we do is we reject entitlement. These two kind of go hand in hand. We have to reject entitlement to a life without suffering. And this is harder for us Americans, and I'm not 100% sure why. Maybe it's all the marketing. Maybe it's the have it your way right away. Maybe it's that mentality that comes to it. Maybe it's the abundance that we have, but we have to reject the entitlement to a life without suffering. Jesus didn't get a pass on suffering. Why should we? Two weeks ago, Pastor Zach preached a powerful sermon on Luke 9.23. If anyone would come after me, these are the words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his or her cross and follow me. Cross is an example. It represents suffering. It represents the laying down of our lives to follow him. If the one we follow suffered, we can expect suffering and we can reject entitlement to a life without suffering. Then the third thing we get to do, this is a little bit more fun. The third thing we get to do is we can rejoice. The scripture tells us to rejoice. We can rejoice in what suffering produces. In fact, Peter was quick to go there in verse 13. We've been looking at 1 Peter 4.12, but in 1 Peter 4.13, he says, But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Except that hardship is the pathway to peace. Just like Jesus did. That you can be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Rejoice in what suffering produces. 
Because there is joy unspeakable and full of glory that follows it. Back in June, how many of you were here for the first week in June when Pastor Sandy preached a a powerful message on Romans chapter 5 and and how we can rejoice in our suffering and all that suffering produces, the perseverance and the character and the faith and the hope, and the hope does not disappoint. We can rejoice in what suffering produces. And lastly, we can embrace Christ and his suffering for us. We can embrace Christ and his suffering for us his suffering with us because he promised he would be with us in our suffering in fact tim keller says you will feel christ walking with you in your furnace to the degree that you know that jesus christ was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you think about that you will feel jesus christ walking with you in your furnace to the degree that you know that Jesus Christ was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you. Our furnaces are much cooler than the furnace that he faced. Our furnaces are much smaller than the furnace he faced on our behalf. And the gospel is that you and I deserve to be cast into the fires of hell and lose God forever. That's the bad news of the gospel. That's what we deserve. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But the gift of God is life in Christ Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus experienced all that for us, experienced the ultimate furnace so that we can be redeemed, so that we can be with God forever. And Nebuchadnezzar nails it in Verse 29 of Daniel chapter 3, he says, No other God can save in this way. He's convinced. He did everything he could. He threw everything he had at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he is convinced no other God can save in this way. And what he's saying when he says that as the king of a religiously pluralistic society is he is saying that no other religion has an answer for suffering Or the promises to us in our suffering that Christianity has. No other religion, no other God can save in this way. Because no other God is willing to suffer for us and to suffer with us. Do you see it? It's beautiful. You see, every other religion, you're left with one of two really lousy options. You'll either hate yourself for failing God, or you'll hate God for failing you. Those are the only two options you have. But Christianity enables us to love Christ for taking the ultimate furnace for us and for stepping into our smaller, cooler furnaces with us. And we have to allow our entire mind and life to be shaped by the good news of the gospel as we suffer, as we go through trials, as we go through difficulties. Take heart. He has overcome the world. Take heart. He is with us. And suffering can drive us to Christ, not away from him. And that, that is what turns us into pure gold, refined by the fire that can reflect him to a lost and dying world, that can reflect him to others in their suffering, that can reflect him as we come alongside other people in their suffering and we come with them and walk with them. And we are Christ to them, walking in the suffering with them, pointing them to Jesus, pointing them to the God who suffers for them and suffers with them.
And so you have an opportunity to respond. You can come to an altar. You can make an altar where you're seated. If you want somebody to pray with you, go to one of these outside altars on the far side and somebody will come put a hand on your shoulder, pray with you. If you just want to pray by yourself, come to these middle two altars. If you want to pray for somebody, intercede for somebody, I encourage you to do that. Maybe you know somebody who's suffering and you feel God calling you to pray for them and to pray with them. But however you choose to respond, I say this all the time, respond in faith, deep faith, true faith, because there is power. There is power in deep, true, even if faith. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your promises to us in our suffering. That though it is inevitable and though we can expect it, we know that we are not alone in our suffering. We know that you are with us, that you took on the ultimate suffering for us. And that you promised, you promised your disciples, you promised us that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, that you are with us to the very end of the age. Help us to believe it. Help us to hold on to it. Help us to declare it with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.